Hey, welcome everyone to TWIG 41. Today we're going to be covering four articles. The first is Ubisoft reveals over 100 games for its Uplay Plus subscription gaming service for September by VentureBeat. The second is how to spot an exploitative mobile games publishing deal from a former publishing CEO from gamesindustry.biz. The third is Tinder is now bypassing the Play Store on Android to avoid Google's 30% cut by The Verge. And the fourth is PUBG officially becomes the world's most popular and highest grossing mobile game by Happy Gamer. Before we jump into the articles, I just want everyone to know we've got myself, Joseph Kim, Adam Telfer, and Eric Kress. Unfortunately, Mishka is not with us today. He's out again on his uh, vacation and jet set lifestyle, I believe in Spain. And I think I saw some some Instagram pictures from Rome or something like that. I, I, I don't even have any idea where he's at this point, but um, he's, he's out somewhere in the world vacationing. But also before we jump in, what, what have you guys been up to? Any, any recent updates from you guys? Well, I have... Uh... A big tournament in Vegas for the for the kids. So back to the kids basketball thing. So we're going to Vegas on Thursday. They're going to play like I don't know, like probably ten games with these other third graders. Um, so I'm kind of excited about that. That should be fun. Um, and then we're coming out to Europe August sixth. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to be in London and Paris. Nice. So What's going on break. Need I need a break. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, not too much with me. Um, actually, been really enjoying LA and area, um, kind of warming up on me, which is nice. Uh, doing a lot of hiking, which is good. And then in a couple weeks, I'll be off from podcasting. Actually, I'll be in in Toronto area just visiting. Okay. So I'm looking forward to that. Back to the motherland. Back to the motherland. <laughs> yeah, and in terms of other updates from me, I just want to give a shout out to Bedalgo for uh, sponsoring uh, user acquisitions. Masters Forum event in LA last week. It went really well. So definitely want to thank Bedalgo for that. Also a quick note for anyone in uh, product management in Vancouver, but with Iron Source, we are rolling out a uh, Games PM Summit event on August 20th. So if anyone's in Vancouver and interested in that event, feel free to PM uh, to, to ping me. And I also just want to do a little bit of self-promotion here. So some of you may know that you know, I'm trying to start a game studio and I've also started a YouTube channel, but I think there is a uh, YouTube channel or YouTube video in particular that I thought was uh, quite good. Um, an interview with Paul Beleza from Riot, where we actually talk about sort of the history of Riot as well as kind of how um, Teamfight Tactics uh, came to be. So for anyone interested, check out um, Game Makers on YouTube. Now, I'm also right after this podcast going to be releasing a video where we do, um, where I kind of cover the process of developing a game prototype over seven days for a new Star Trek game. So um, if anyone's interested, please check that out. And Eric, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about a quick update on Blizzard as well, if you want to talk about that now. Yeah, I mean, the latest news is uh, after 28 years, uh, Frank Pierce has left Blizzard. Um, he was one of the founders with Morheim. Uh, he's more behind the scenes guy. I don't really know much about him, to be honest. Uh, and when Morheim left last year, he took an advisory role. Um, and when Jay took over, but you know, it's just kind of a sad day. I don't think this was a surprise, by the way. I think everyone kind of expected him to go. So it's not like the company's like reeling from him, his departure. I think when Morheim decided to leave, he probably likely decided to leave and just, just stepped, stepped back and let Jay take over. But basically, it's kind of what we've been talking about for the last two podcast. You know, the last few podcasts. You know, Blizzard royalty and is basically done. You know, the current situation with Activision is untenable. And not to be a broken record, I think Activision and their legion of McKenzie and Bain consultants are kind of ruining Blizzard. You know, and and we'll see how it actually all evolves over time. But I obviously continue to be worried about uh, where these guys are headed. But we will see. Um, so uh, I'll move into the first story. The first story is about Ubisoft. So um, so Ubisoft kind of revealed this at E3. It's basically they're doing uh, Uplay plus subscription, you know, similar to what uh, EA is doing uh, on PC. And it's basically 100 games for their subscription service starting September. Uh, and basically they're charging $15 a month. And wow, you know, at 180 bucks. And it's, again, PC only. 
So this year they're going to have Ghost Recon, Breakpoint, Watchdogs, and Rainbow Six Quarantine. And they also continue to reiterate the point that you get actually access to additional content and DLC, and we'll get to why that is later. And again, they will offer this at Stadia, but details around that were really uh, unclear on how it's actually going to work on Stadia. So kind of my take on this, you know, it's pricey, right? 180 bucks, quite a bit of money for, for a subscription service for one, one um, publisher. Um, and I would argue that the 100 games catalog is kind of not interesting to anybody. No one plays catalog games. I mean, it's just a, it's just a fact, right? Like I heard from a Sony guy that only 2% of actually people play uh, prior generation games on new consoles, that sort of thing. And everyone I talk to kind of confirms this behind the scenes that that backwards compatibility and catalog games are just kind of features on a box and that's it. You know, it just basically gives people hope and, and comfort that they're all the games that they've invested in are, are not going to go away, but at the end of the day, no one actually plays them. So if you take that and move that away, you know, and not think about that, you have to like kind of, you kind of have to see what's left over and Ubisoft basically has three big games coming out this year to drive, you know, to drive their unit forecast and their and their revenue forecast. That's Ghost Recon, Watch Dogs, and Rainbow Six Quarantine. All these three games are sixty bucks a pop, right? So three times sixty is one eighty. I mean, that's not a coincidence, right? So they're basically saying you're getting a break-even type uh, deal if you pay this subscription, but you will receive downloadable content and DLC, and that's this is likely why they'll, they repeat this over and over in the press release is that. That's the value add that you're getting. You're basically paying 180 bucks and you're getting access to those three games plus all the downloadable content and, 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 and additional content. So next year, assuming they make three more game big games, which is typical for Ubisoft, then you're basically getting the same deal next year. So who is this really interesting for? I mean, for me, it seems like it's interesting for people that would have bought the games anyway, right? I, you know, I don't think this price point at all like expands the audience, right? There's... You know, there's no reason for anybody that's not interested in, in those three games to pay $180 to get access to the rest of the stuff, you know. So this is really similar to EA's premium su subscription, where I think the lion's share of the people that will be interested are the audience of EA customers or uh, Ubisoft customers that would have bought it anyway, right? So, you know, at, at a high level, though, like subscription revenue is actually more valuable than people buying three games at $60, because if you can command a, a recurring subscription, for your services, it is a, it creates a higher value in the eyes of an investor, right? But and 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 that's probably part of what they're going for, trying to get more of this recurring revenue and digital revenue. But given the price point, you know, I just think that we are basically this is geared towards a super core audience with Ubisoft, and it's probably not going to scale beyond that, right? And there could have there could be some potential cannibalization in the sense that this audience would have likely have bought these games as well as the DLC. So, so you may be losing some of that revenue, but maybe they're converting some people that would have bought two games and then, and that'll kind of like offset the people that would have likely have bought the DLC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, not too sure that this is really incremental. I think this is just more of a service for the most loyal customers and like EA, I doubt it will scale and help them build or, you know, capture new audiences or really grow the overall revenue. I think it's just kind of, just capturing the revenue that they already had to begin with. It's kind of my take on it. How about you, Joseph? What do you think? Uh, so for me, I'm, I, I definitely agree with you. So just, just two quick points for me. The first is just that I agree that the value of the back catalog is very limited. The games market, as any gamer knows, is more about recency and big current hits, which also leads to my second point, which is that people keep talking about the games business in terms of a reference to Netflix and like who's going to be the next Netflix for games. But as I've said a few times on previous podcasts before, the consumption model for games is actually different than for video. So when you think about video content, it's more about like one time, more of a consumable goods model where you watch something once and you're highly unlikely to watch it or watch it several times over and over again. There are exceptions to this like you know, a lot of kids watch Disney and Pixar animation video content over and over. But by and large, when we talk about video content, it's more of a consumable goods model. For games, I would argue it's more of a durable goods model where a game like Fortnite can be played for years over and over and over again. 
So in the case of a durable good, the value of subscription becomes a lot less rather than just owning that good by paying for it just one time. So the point I'm making is that because we have different sort of entertainment consumption models, we're not talking apples to apples here and that building a value proposition against long tail content for this entertainment medium where that long tail is just not as valuable. It's just not an equal comparison. And I think this is a nuance that, uh, that it seems like a lot of people, at least, you know, in the media and, and different folks in the industry are just not quite getting. Adam? Yeah, um, I'm definitely going to agree with what's been said by both you guys. Um, gaming is definitely not any sort of version of Netflix, and we shouldn't assume that the same models work. Um, back catalogs of games aren't valued the same. Uh, as back catalogs of, say, movies and TV shows. And also echoing kind of uh, Eric's comments previously, Uplay seems targeted at PC gamers that are already dedicated to Ubisoft games. So my sense is that this is going to be a small percentage and one that Ubisoft should actually be upselling, not discounting to. Um, as well, um, just repeating from JK, um, yeah, the games can be significantly more durable than TV shows and movies. And this is exactly why free-to-play business model and games as a service is the dominant model, uh, far better than subscriptions, especially bundling games. Ubisoft, what's surprising about this is that Ubisoft clearly knows this, as they have actually been one of the few publishers focused on building multi-year games. Um, the big ones, um, of course, are Siege uh, for Honor and Division as well. Um, what I really find odd about this whole Uplay thing is just how counter it is to what I feel like is actually working um, especially looking at their recent financial call. Um, one of the biggest takeaways was kind of their rise of their metric called PRI, which is player recurring investment, or effectively DLC and microtransaction revenue within these games, um, especially within their top franchise, Rainbow Six Siege. So my confusion really comes down to, like, why aren't they really doubling down on this in terms of trying to build out a few strong games as service titles instead of going wide? Because it feels like, this subscription service actually starts to go counter towards what is needed to drive a strong games as a service portfolio. Um, where with this subscription, we're already talking about launching you know, three plus titles, tenfold releases each year um, in this kind of consumable um, uh, engagement where, where players are going to be only playing Assassin's Creed for 20, 30 hours, dropping it and then moving on, uh, which is very different from games as a service and where they've been driving their revenue. Um, so this, this starts to confuse me because you start to look into all the different avenues overall in Ubisoft strategy. Like, why is Uplay giving away all the DLC for free when games like Rainbow Six Siege are really driving a lot of the revenue from it? Especially why Rainbow Six Siege is actually included in it, especially with all four years of DLC inside, which is pretty massive value. And on top of this, when you start looking into like, how does Uplay work with Stadia and that whole <laughs> right, like that whole strategy around Stadia, um, the Epic Store exclusives, and their strategy to invest in PRI, it just feels like they're dipping into everything. So I say all this because I'm actually like a, I'm a pretty big fan of Ubisoft because I feel like they're one of the best position publishers for the future of PC console. Um, just because like their ability to execute in games as a service over the last like five plus years has been very very impressive. Uh, where EA has had Anthem and Bethesda has had Fallout 76, Ubisoft's one of the few companies that has the confidence to launch games um, and get them into their multi-year, fourth year of growth. Uh, that would be Rainbow Six Siege. Um, it just feels like you play it goes counter to that. Yeah, actually, to add a few more points here is like they are killing it. You know, For Honor and Division and the Siege, uh, Rainbow Six Siege are, are actually doing extremely well. Super durable franchises, you know, small audiences, but you know, making money hand over fist. So I kind of agree to you with you is that there is a risk that they actually kind of even cannibalize themselves more on those sorts of things if they're giving stuff away for free. I, I just doubt that they're going to be giving much for Rainbow Six Siege for free. You know, I, I have to look into it a little bit more. Um, it's in the list. It's in the list. Yeah, but whether or not they're giving away all the. Um, uh, what do you call it? The operators? Yeah, it says Gear Four Ultimate Edition, which includes all operators. I'm really? assuming at least Year Four, um, but it looked like with Ultimate Edition, typically you get all of the characters. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, I, you know what? I'd like to think 
like in a perfect world that, you know, their strategy group is in Paris, right? I would hope that they have done the analysis to figure out like, is this cannibalistic? But frankly, given my understanding of how those guys operate, um, that perhaps they have not. (laughs) So like, they're not the smartest, you know, most uh, (laughs) at at market analysis, they kind of like fly by the seat of their pants. I don't know if it's a French thing or what, but um, uh, let's hope that they've actually done the analysis to figure out whether or not this is going to be cannibalistic to their existing business. But we shall see. Of course, it's PC only. So that's also helpful, right? So they can, it's kind of a Petri dish of, you know, you know, you know, test it out there and see if it's something that they can move to console eventually. So we'll see. I mean, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I really like Ubisoft. I, I really like what they do. They they are the most innovative out of all the publishers and they continue to do new, new stuff all the time. So, and they've been talking about subscription and Stadia and all this stuff for quite a while. So we'll see how this works out for them. All right. What's next? Uh, that's me. Okay. So, um, Gamesindustry.biz just actually did a, a really interesting interview with uh, Klaus Kirsten uh, from Flare Games. Um, that's a German company. Um, the title of the article, How to Spot an Exploitative Mobile Game Publishing Deal from a Former Publishing CEO. Um, so the uh, article summary is essentially Klaus talking about his experience as a publishing CEO and um, talking through specific clauses within common publishing deals between a mobile publisher and a mobile developer um, that can be uh, extremely exploitative to the future of a developer's studio. Um, so the, there was four key points in this article, uh, which he says to watch out for when creating uh, a deal. Uh, the first one is talking about revenue from organics. Um, and that's specifically when talking about recoup, when say a publisher is gonna be doing uh, user acquisition on your game, they're going to be expecting to uh, recoup all of their UA costs um, before, uh, say, profit is shared between the two parties. Uh, and in this case, the clause is talking about organics being actually used for paying for UA. And the, um, uh, what Klaus is really pushing for is saying that uh, as a developer, you should be pushing that organics, or at least the organics that you had um, up to the point of this deal, should be kept as your own organic revenue. Um, that the only payback should be for the organic uplift that comes from this campaign. Um, This kind of feeds into his second point, which is talking about publishers being the sole decider on user acquisition. So they decide whether um, a publisher, like whether they're going to be putting money into your game or not and how much. Um, This means that, of course, they can drop UA spend completely, uh, but they can actually be pulling in your organic revenue. So pulling from the last point uh, as a game, you could have just, say, uh, 10,000 new users of organics um, coming into your game and generating sizable revenue. You want to see uplift from this publisher, um, but what they could end up doing is drop UA spend and basically pull all of that revenue coming from your organic players. Uh, third point is talking about control of IP in your game. Um, and this is not just saying, you know, keep your game. Um, you can keep the characters from your game, uh, but uh, sometimes these clauses can actually prevent you as a developer from actually launching on other platforms. Um, or launching new products that are, say, competitive. So if you're working in turn-based RPG space, um, your your game is flatlined, working with this partner, then you start launching new games within that genre, uh, you're prevented from doing that. Uh, And lastly, uh, no ability to terminate this clause or uh, this agreement, um, which is a definite no-no when you're taking, um, when you're talking with these types of publishers. So a no ability for a developer to actually back out uh, in the case that they find a new publisher or they find uh, a better source of capital. Um, so my key questions for this, uh, for the group are, do you believe publishers actually need these clauses to work effectively? Um, is this exploitation or is this actually just stakes compete in mobile? Um, and second question, uh, do you believe mobile publishing overall is a good business to be in given the state of the market? So my take, do they need these clauses? Uh, no. They don't need all these clauses, but of course the details actually matter here. Um, when you're accepting capital, um, it, you have to understand what you're signing away. Because in some of these deals, when say the publisher is actually funding development, when the publisher is actually uh, funding significant marketing costs, um, IP signing away IP and taking away your organic revenue is definitely not the worst that I've heard. Um, some of these contracts, especially in the hyper-casual space, so that's like Voodoo, Lion, 
cetera. I've heard actually incredibly toxic uh, clauses within those um, that can absolutely murder a company's, an indie company's future. Um, in that case, the publisher actually has significant leverage because hypercasual games can't really be successful without uh, Voodoo and Lion and their network and their UA expertise. Uh, but in some cases, this isn't true. Um, but going, coming back to the article, I think there's two, two points that actually surprised me from this. He's talking about this organics um, and kind of publishers being a decider on UA. Um, like the, the thing that I was really surprised at is that like publishers actually dropping their UA spend and siphoning off just the organic revenue from these games. And I'm pretty surprised that that would be a sizable portion of these publishers' actual revenues. If this is like their actual strategy is just exploiting a whole bunch of indie developers. Um, I'm surprised that this has happened. And if it has, I would definitely push any developer out there to, to, to speak up because I'm pretty sure that if a publisher is doing this, um, it'd be pretty quick um, to be spread around the internet and they would no longer be able to do business. Um, but going to kind of the, is mobile publishing a good business to be in? Um, this is my own opinion, but I would say no. Uh, but of course it depends on how you define publishing. Um, to start, I would not make the false equivalency between mobile publishing and console publishing. These are absolutely drastically different. Um, and my sense is that mobile publishing actually can take a lot of different forms. Uh, and that's kind of where I, I say that there, there's certain forms of mobile publishing that I don't really agree with, don't believe are effective because I don't think they're really needed to actually be successful on mobile. Um, and mobile pub publishing, um, I think right from the back of, like right from the beginning of mobile, uh, you think about its humble beginnings, I think like Chilingo um, and Angry Birds. And if you think about that story, um, all those years ago where Chilingo effectively grabbed Angry Birds, the IP, locked down Rovio for the first couple of games, and then and, uh, Rovio finally was able to, to separate themselves from them. Um, I feel like this, this kind of ecosystem is a bit of a weird place because really what are these publishers really bringing of value to developers? Developers don't really need a publisher to talk to Apple. It's not like console. Developers can talk to Apple directly. It's pretty easy. The days of indies that don't actually know how to talk to Apple or do UA or make an icon are absolutely over. Those indies are completely wiped out. So publishers today need to be offering something actually like a mid-level serious developer doesn't have. Maybe that's access to a massive player network. Maybe that's UA expertise. Maybe that's live ops tool sets. Uh, maybe that's capital. But publishers can't just be consultants, which is what they were right from the beginning. They need to be owning actually both sides of the LTV CPI spectrum. Um, so on mobile, I would say there's kind of four um, types of publishers with some examples here. So like there's, there's guys like Tilting Point, which I would say is more centralized UA, as well as deploying capital. Um, and I think this is really what Klaus is talking mostly about, where exploitation can happen, where um, they kind of use the fact that they're um, the, your sole source for capital for, for marketing um, and then start putting in these exploitative clauses within it to prevent you. Then there's things like Superscale, uh, which is much more about uplift of your current LTV and CPI situations. Um, so this, uh, I would say, is pretty successful, um, especially with companies like PopReach or Decade Games, uh, where they're actually taking some of these old games um, and then uh, saying, you know, instead of a developer being tied down by the live ops of those games, actually working with them to uh, take those old games and uh, build a proper live ops for them uh, to maintain them for the long run. Scopely would be another one, which is actually partnering directly with a developer. Um, right from the onset of the project, this is much closer to, say, console publishing, um, and they offer a lot more centralized products, centralized UA, uh, and their model is to say a lot more, like a lot fewer partners, taking a lot higher risk and a, a lot higher ownership of the outcome. And I think they're very successful with this track, and I would definitely say this is the type of mobile publishing that, that can work. And um, Voodoo is the last one, and I think this one's the craziest one where they're effectively buying out a ton of small developers, like two to three man shops, based on very, very simple and quick metric tests. And essentially running all the UA, UA creative, create, uh, as well as product marketing, all centrally to create a massive network of hyper-casual games. And in this case, just like Klaus is talking about, this is really where they can be exploited as hell, when they've got a lot more leverage on those developers. So in those four cases, each have been successful in their own way, with varying levels of exploitiveness. Um, 
I believe a publishing can work with these effective business models, but like my sense is I would much rather opt for say the scoping model or the super scale model instead of the, the ones that Klaus is talking about, which is just a recipe for exploitation. Eric? All right, I will be, I'll just talk about like whether I think it's a viable kind of model to be a publisher per se. So I think historically, back when I was at Kabam, you know, there was basically five key things that publishing did, and we tried to start a publishing arm at Kabam at the time. One was, you know, establishing the relationship with Apple and Google for featuring. Um, two, UA expertise, you know, an optimization around UA. Um, three, that they're, you know, you partner for game development and design, like kind of helped optimize um, how the game was designed, monetization, et cetera. Also, obviously, a source of funds for UA, uh, money, money, money. And then uh, live ops tech and, you know, strategy for content delivery and, and promotions and things like that. So for me, I think the first two have all, the first two, which is uh, the Apple and Google featuring and UA expertise is kind of irrelevant now. You know, featuring really no longer gives you that uptick it used to. Um, we could get millions of downloads with the good featuring on the App Store, uh, but now it's like a fraction of that these days. I think, you know, primarily this is related to the to the disastrous redesign of the Apple Store, which makes no freaking sense. And to a lesser degree, the way the Google Store is kind of optimized around algorithms, kind of like Netflix, as opposed to featuring. But um, but I think just in general, like that value add for, I think anybody can establish kind of relationships with Google and Apple to some degree. So there is some benefit to it, but not, not as much as it used to be. And the second is, and I think you probably will, some will disagree on me on this, is that UA expertise seems to be becoming less and less valuable as, as, as we go. I, I had a head of UA at some big company tell me that an undergrad can, man and can manage UA on Facebook using their tools and tech and, and Google as well. So I don't know. I don't think that's as, 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 as big of a deal. And kind of, this kind of leads me to like, you know, Money, game development, design, and live ops tech and, and, and strategy. And I think there's a very small subset of publishers that actually can do this and do it well. I think Scopely seems to be most successful with this model with partnering with uh, studios and, and bringing their games to market. Not only, are they, not only are they actually doing the work, but they are also selecting the right type of games too, which is also a, strat you know, is a, is a skill as well. But a high, higher level is like, just fundamentally, and part of the reason that Kabam ultimately got rid of it is that there's too many hands in the cookie jar when you're when you're dealing with a publisher, right? If you you have the publisher, you have the developer, you have Apple and Google, you have any licensors, and then you have UA. It's like all this money is just dissipating, you know, for for any revenue that you're generating from these games. So it's really hard for this publishing model to work ultimately. And I think at the end of the, I think the the, the kind of conclusion that I've drawn and and part of the, what I think about Scopely in general, I think the only long-term defendable position really is owning both development and publishing and scopely seems to be like looking seeing this and they're starting to acquire their studios they just bought digit you know the game studios who make uh sorry the games digit game studios who makes uh, star trek fleet, fleet command and i think if i were them um as a successful publisher i would just look at trying to get more and more of their development uh resources in-house i think that creates the most value um for a company long term in, 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 in the private and public markets. So Joseph. Yeah. So I'll have to agree with you, Eric, and just, you know, to, to your point about the evolution of mobile game publishing and what we're seeing with Scopely, we have seen an evolution of Scopely's model where it does seem like they're increasingly moving towards acquiring the studios and that there is a lot of advantage by owning the studio and having a, a higher level of integration and cooperation between like the publishing function as well as the development and studio function. So I'll disagree with you a little bit, Eric, though, in terms of um, whether featuring and UA are irrelevant. I do agree that the featuring is a lot less relevant than before. And just, just to put some specific numbers there, uh, some studies that have that uh, I've run in the past and just looking at some of the data, we've seen that featuring, you know, just based on some data points that we've looked at has about 30% to 40% of the impact that it used to have. And then from a UA perspective, I agree that it's increasingly more plug and play, especially with things like Google UAC, more than, even more than Facebook. 
But in terms of the advances of machine learning based bidding algorithms, you don't have a lot of the same levers anymore and the, and the algorithms are just taking on more and more and more. However, I will say that there is a level of sophistication on the UA side that is possible and that can deliver pretty significant amounts of competitive advantage, especially when we're talking about uh, you know, how, how you plan budgeting how you do your um, sort of LTV and ROAS yield analysis and how you acquire at scale. And finally, how, uh, well, how you do your creative optimization and how you actually work with the product management team together to kind of optimize everything. So I still do think that um, user acquisition is potentially an area of significant competitive advantage, also depending on the, the genre that you're in. And going back to... Um, to Adam's questions, uh, just wanted to talk about the specific contract terms. So I, I, I do agree that if you have a game that has high levels of organic traffic that, and if a, if a mobile game publisher is, is just generating most of their revenue off of the organics, that that's not a fair situation. I, I will say that, you know, characterizing organics versus paid is actually not that difficult. So there are MMPs, uh, which are basically mobile measurement providers like Adjust, AppFlyer, AppsFlyer that can help characterize this. And, you know, there, there's some accuracy issues, especially by like self-attributing networks like Facebook or Apple, but generally speaking, you can characterize it. But I will say that this is, it's kind of a rare situation where you've got a not, let's say a non-IP based game that's just throwing off tons of organic traffic. And so you're not, you know, and, and where, that traffic is primarily responsible for most of the revenue in, in, in the game. I think if you're at that point, it's most likely not a very successful game anyway. Um, and then there's also the further complication that paid traffic generally does lead to some organic traffic. And so that viral coefficient actually will also provide some value. But yeah, I, I guess generally speaking, you know, I, I would just pay attention to how the deal is structured and making sure that if the publisher is not spending, that they don't, they don't take most of the revenue from the organic traffic. Um, the second point in terms of uh, publishers being the sole decider on UA, in my opinion, I would say that in the ideal scenario, studios should be working with publishers on this. But in my experience, and I think just the practical reality of the situation is that if a studio is going to a UA-focused publisher in the first place, it's likely because they don't have a lot of depth or expertise on the UA side. And so I'm not sure if it's very practical or you know, if it's something that you want to have where a publisher has to explain everything to a studio, they're kind of learning, they're you know, kind of meddling into all the sort of uh, conversations about what to do. I mean, that is the ideal scenario if, if you've got two sophisticated um, teams working together, but Generally speaking, I, I, I'm not sure that's the typical case. And then as far as control of IP for the game, in my opinion, it just depends on who's funding. So if, if a publisher is coming in you know, at the 11th hour just funding UA, I, I think controlling IP is not right. But you know, for a lot of the more traditional types of publishers that are funding development and you know, if, if they're funding everything, they're funding UA, they're giving a developer a generous backend, then in my opinion, in that scenario for the developer to own the IP is, is a little bit ridiculous. And I mean, to be honest, right now, I think there's like a supply and demand problem by publishers for high quality developers, especially with all the m and activity over the past few years. And, you know, most of the very successful game studios who are able to achieve success on their own, they're not looking for publishers. So I actually think that currently developers actually are getting pretty favorable deals just because there aren't a lot of great developers out there looking for publisher deals. So, um, so, so yeah, I, I, so with respect to IP, I think that, uh, you know, again, it depends on who's funding and, uh, right now, I, I, I just think it's, it's actually a great time for developers. And finally, in terms of the ability to terminate, in general, there, there should just be an ability to terminate on both sides. Um, so if either party is not performing, you, you should put contract clauses in so that there are outs on both sides. And then 
just in terms of the uh, Adam's second question about whether publishing is a good business to be in or not, I do think it's been difficult and it's becoming increasingly difficult to be successful in pu publishing. And there are definitely a lot of dead bodies in the space. And we are seeing an evolution of models. Uh, Adam spoke to kind of the four different current models. But, you know, publishing right now, to some degree, is becoming a bad word. So, you know, Mishka and I did a podcast, which we'll release soon with Scopely, and we're doing a whole series on, on publishers. So I hope you guys check that out. But, you know, um, super, uh, so Scopely doesn't even want to be called a publisher because that's not all that they do, as, as Eric alluded to. They do actually a lot more. Superscale is, is another company that doesn't like to be called a publisher as well, even though they do um, a lot of uh, traditionally publisher functions. And so, um, yeah, I guess uh, the last point I'll just make here is that um, I, I do think it's increasingly difficult to become successful as a publisher just because it's not just about those things that Eric talked about about in terms of financing, IP, and distribution, in my opinion, to be successful. And so to be successful in today's market, you need to have a lot of depth. You need to have a lot of expertise and technology infrastructure in order to be successful. And it's, you know, I, I often say to game studios that the game is not the game. And what I mean by that is that if you make a really good and compelling game, that that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. And especially when you're going to very competitive genres like Match 3, there's so much other things that you need to be successful with, with respect to, you know, whether it's sales and merchandising, uh, machine learning against uh, balancing levels um, on the user acquisition side. And so there's just so much more that's required. And I think those are the capabilities that publishers are going to have to embrace and start to develop in order to provide more value to uh, studios. And so that is my take on that. And with that, unless there are any other comments, I can jump to the third article. So the third article is uh, about Tinder and uh, it's, it's titled, Tinder is now bypassing the Play Store on Android to avoid Google's 30% cut. And this article is basically talking about how, like Epic Games with Fortnite before them, Tinder is now trying to encourage users to bypass Google's play, Google Play's payment system and just have users enter their credit card details um, directly into Tinder systems. So Epic and Match, which owns Tinder, are the only two high-profile companies trying to openly bypass uh, Google Play so far. However, companies like Netflix and Spotify have been complaining for years about the 30% platform fees. Further, the article does mention uh, Spotify, which has filed an antitrust lawsuit against Apple with the European Commission to try and get the fee reduced via regulation, uh, although I think there are some other issues there. And the um, other way companies are handling the platform fee is to just not allow IAP. So for example, Netflix stopped allowing IAP on iOS last December. So my own take on this is that to some degree, I, I think it's just the cost of doing business. And so when you think about what you know, Apple did in terms of creating this huge ecosystem, and you know, there's mass, you know, Apple and Google, there's this obviously massive value coming from the ecosystems that they've created and the ability to monetize billion plus person platforms. That, that's just very, very valuable. And so, you know, I, I the Argument in terms of is 30% fair? You know, I, I think that's an open question that's arguable. But for me personally, I think you have to agree that some fairly substantial per percentage is obviously fair, in my opinion, just given the value of the platform, and that we want Apple and Google to continue to invest and make the platform better for users. We also want to make sure that apps are vetted for quality and for safety. And one thing I can say about Apple is that you know I trust them more with personal data and, and Google than I do other companies for sure. So part of that fee is to not only invest in the user experience, but to also help protect me as a user because to be clear, there are definitely a lot of shady app developers out there. So this function is also, in my opinion, critically important. Eric, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of a big deal. It's quite a blow to Google and potentially Apple, but I really think that Apple will never allow this to happen. And frankly, I think, you know, 
Google will likely respond as well because uh, when this happened with uh, Fortnite, uh, it was like all hands on deck. Um, you know, one one clarification here on the article, you know, they basically brought in the antitrust argument from um, Spotify related to competition from Apple Music. Uh, and the thing is that that's not related to the 30% fee as being antitrust. It's about the argument is that the 30% fee puts them at a disadvantage, puts Spotify at a disadvantage relative to Apple Music, who does not have to pay that fee. And for this, I think they might might have a case, and I'm not a lawyer, but I, they may have a case. But this is not an antitrust complaint related to the 30% fee itself. I do not think that publishers actually will get very far on antitrust argument for the 30% fee. It just doesn't make any sense, really. Um, it is possible that Apple and Google may be forced to reduce fees because of all this negative sentiment, but I, I still think the publishers really have no leverage here, you know, and I think um, it's a whole other subject and I think, you know, maybe we can talk about it another time, but I think the original article on Bloomberg did not even mention this thing about uh, the antitrust stuff from Spotify. I think Verge, The Verge was actually just conflating the two issues, so I just want to be clear on that one. Um, but we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I, I'm just going to kind of summarize in, in general is that both Google and Apple seem to be focusing more on driving profitable store business. You know, Apple is talking up services as iPhone sales continue to wane. You know, the Google's new CFO is coming in and being more aggressive about, about accountability on divisions uh, for profitability, which is changing kind of the, the mantra of what they're doing with the store. Um, and, and when, when Fortnite went off the store, I mean, I had friends that worked at Google. It was like all hands on deck. People were like losing their collective minds about how this actually could possibly happen. So again, I do think Google will respond. Um, so I don't think, you know, at the end of the day, I think what you said is right. Is like they should be investing in the store, right? They should be investing in making the store better and, and providing more value to the publishers to justify the 30%. And first off, and I'm going to make this case again, is that Apple should start start off by fixing the goddamn store, right? They should be optimizing, um, optimizing you know the games that people play and spend, as opposed to optimizing against these premium games that no one gives a shit about, right? And then to top it off, they're actually doing this subscription service that we've talked about before, the Apple Arcade, that competes directly with their best publisher, and no one gives a shit about these games, you know, and so. Leadership at Apple just to have no idea what the hell is going on in their store if, they're, if they've been convinced that, that, that this Apple Arcade and this stuff could be a thing, you know? And so it's, it's kind of ridiculous. What I think they should do is focus on how they can help developers of the games um, and, you know, that, that the games that people really care about and how they can make money on the store by integrating better technology for subscriptions and innovating on monetization tools and tracking, you know, get rid of all this bullshit editorial on the store and take the key learnings from like Amazon, eBay, Netflix, Microsoft, Steam, et cetera, on how to optimize the store, a digital store with algorithm based on interests, you know, and, you know, other key indicators of demand, right? Not, none of these like leading like storefronts have edit bullshit editorial uh, around their games. It's just ridiculous. You don't, you go down to Safeway, you take a look at how their shelves are fucking designed. You know, the major brands are at eye level and the sub brands are at low levels. These strategies have been around for freaking 100 years, you know? You know, does, does, does Safeway have tear sheets on the shelves, you know, with articles that give you the origins of your peanut butter brand or how your ice cream got from cow to carton? You know, it's ridiculous. Just stop this, right? And put it, make a store that's a store, you know? And so anyway, I'm digressing here. I just so <laughs> every time I go in the store, I'm like, this is obscene that, that that this is what we have they have created. Now Google is a bit better, but Apple's got to really get their head out of their ass and 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 make this thing compelling like it used to be. Okay, and 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 better for the consumer, right? And not like some you know I don't know fever dream of of what a store should look like from these creative types at Apple. But anyway, I digress. Okay, so. These kind of revolts from from the from the from the publishers of of these really popular apps uh, will likely get some serious reaction from Apple and Google, right? They're not they are not going to allow this stuff to happen and 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 go off their store. Now they haven't done anything yet um, uh, on the Google side, but I imagine that's all hands on deck to figure out how to respond to this type of behavior from from Tinder um, and. If Tinder does it, then other people are going to do it, right? Because it's not that easy, not that hard to implement it, you know? And so, I, I, honestly, I just don't think this is going to stand. Um, but we, we'll see. What do you think, Adam? 
I, I don't know how I how to follow that rant. That was amazing. <laughs> but no, I, I would definitely say that uh, I agree with what's been said. One clarification note here is just in the comparison between Tinder and Fortnite. In the case of Fortnite, Fortnite pulled themselves out of the Play Store completely. Like they weren't even in the store. You couldn't download off the store. Um, and I think with that, you know, paying the 30% fee is too high. So it makes sense that they, they can actually put in their own credit card information if they're driving like their own downloads. Um, but Tinder is still actually on the Play Store. People are still downloading off of their services. Um, Google's still pushing users into their service. So yeah, that 30% fee is actually much more, uh, you know, in line with what, what value Google's actually offering. Um, so that seems a bit odd. And I don't think that Google should allow that to happen. And I think this is very, very unlikely that this actually passes uh, with, that, with Apple. I agree with what's been said on that. Um, and I think that they have to try to catch this stuff now uh, because, yeah, these are large developers like Tinder and Epic, uh, Match and Epic. But at the same time, um, things will, will spread if, if this is obviously the, the way to you know, increase your profits by 30%. Um, and, of course, I definitely agree with Eric on the state of the App Store just being absolutely abysmal. Uh, and I think Apple needs to work significantly to, to increase the value of featuring because they're, they're losing, as we're talking about here in terms of publishing, they're losing their actual impact with developers. They're losing their ability to influence developers to make sure that they're actually building games that are going to be driving downloads and, and driving units um, for, for Apple's uh, iPhones, et cetera. And I think uh, like before, I remember people bending over backwards to make sure that their integrations with Apple watches, et cetera, were amazing. But I don't see that now because the value of featuring is gone. Yeah, and, and one more thing I'll say is that like, look, historically they've been focused on selling devices, right? But it's pretty clear the device sales are declining in terms of growth uh, and declining just overall, right? So if their focus is on building services, then fix your stupid store and make it so that, the, that there is less it's easy to find the games that people want to play and spend money on, right? And and focus on those developers and design and, and publishers that have the games that people want and not all this trash that no one wants, right? It's like, it's so obvious to me. And so ultimately it's, I, I think if they really want to do this, which I think they do, then they will, they will fix it all, right? And they, they will likely redesign the store to make it more, um, you know, more optimized around revenue, right? But but maybe not. I don't know. It's like, that's why I just don't, yeah, I don't know if Apple can pull it off, right? And, and, and actually move to a services style business. I'm, I'm very skeptical at their ability to do that because I think it's contrarian to kind of the way they operate in general. So, um, but I don't know. I, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm, we'll see what they do. Uh, I think Google is kind of on the right path. I think a lot of those guys are actually getting really smart in terms of how to optimize around their algorithm to uh, bring up games that people want. Um, and and they continue to tweak it, and I think you know they are probably more more further along. Um, but they they have to kick, Google has to get control of their store and, and and punish Tinder in some way so that this doesn't happen again. You know, with other big apps, right? Um, so anyway, we'll see what happens. All right, next one, PUBG. PUBG. All right, so uh, article. Uh, PUBG has officially become the world's most popular and highest grossing mobile game. Um, this uh, basically reports that PUBG is at a point now with about 100 million active players, uh, reported roughly about 146 million in revenue last month. Um, and just to kind of compare these to Sensor Tower estimates, um, this was from Sensor Tower, which I think tries to group everything in terms of uh, PUBG, all the different offsets that it has, including like Game for Peace in China. Uh, that's 420 million in downloads as well as 540 million in revenue that's life to date. Uh, and comparing the 146 million last month number, uh, Sensor Tower roughly has it at about 110 million. Um, so those two numbers roughly make sense given um, estimates. Um, and what the major change was that kind of drove this major growth was the Game for Peace relaunch uh, in China in May. Um, that actually allowed them to get through the Chinese frozen review process um, to actually launch in China. Um, and like, there were some pretty major changes in this launches. They're, they're mostly cosmetic to make sure that it actually passes to, uh, Chinese government. It was pretty interesting to, to, to look at. Uh, one of the funniest ones, of course, is that, of course, 
players, instead of dying in blood when they get shot up, they actually just get up when eliminated and wave goodbye to the winner. <laughs> <laughs> so to be honest, this, this seems almost like a joke when it comes to the actual implementation, but you, know, you can't really laugh at those types of revenue numbers. Um, what's impressive though, when you start looking into like Tencent um, and this game is just how fully featured it is and how much they're really investing in it. Um, the amount of modes in this game is, is pretty jaw dropping. So we're talking about Call of Duty Mobile before um, and Tencent being the developer for that. Uh, they're also adding in similar modes from Call of Duty Mobile into PUBG Mobile. So recently they just announced Team Deathmatch. You can actually play that now. There's also a ton of other modes in the game, including shooting up zombies and um, sniper modes, et cetera. So it definitely competes with Fortnite in terms of um, just the width of, of what you can actually do within the game. Um, but the surprising element here is not that, you know, the game's super successful in China. It's actually that China is actually only making up less than 25% of the revenue of the game. This is an estimate from Sensor Tower, um, but I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. So a quarter of the revenue coming from China. Uh, and if you look at its performance, um, it's got steady downloads. Um, it's on the tail end of its download curve, but it's still growing significantly its revenue. So that's really speaking to very, very strong long-term retention, um, as well as that revenue spiking around each Battle Pass launch. Uh, so you can really clearly see that. Um, so th this is a very, very strong performing game. This puts them in the lead right now as the highest grossing mobile game, um, but surprisingly with a low RPI. I think that was like a dollar twenty-five or something like that in terms of RPI. Um, but yeah, let's let's chat through this. What do you guys think? Is, well, is PUBG Mobile surprising? Well, first first of all, I, I would actually when you say China is only twenty-five percent, like both Sensor Tower and App Annie don't track Google, so oh, sure. I would imagine that it's far higher than twenty-five percent, and it's around fifty percent for the last couple of months since 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 it got re-released as a you know that new game, whatever that's called, Game for Peace. So I think China will be a far bigger piece of the pie. Um, and frankly, I'm not really that all that surprised about the success in China, given you know the Tencent's publishing ability as well as the popularity of the genre. I'm a little bit more surprised at the success in the West. Um, I know the game is like really well designed for mobile and microtransactions. And maybe Adam, who's again much smarter than I am with this stuff, thing can add the color of, of why this the model like makes sense. Um, but Again, the, it's definitely a better designed game than the PC version. Um, and you know, my argument generally for the West is that there's so many more alternatives to playing on a mobile device on PC and console that why would you want to play PUBG on a mobile device? Um, but uh, you know, Fortnite kind of makes sense because you know it's a younger demo that have limited access to PC and consoles. But uh, the core shooter market just seems like there's tons of alternatives that you could play rather than playing PUBG on mobile. But Maybe part of it's because PUBG is still $29 on Steam and the console version evidently is terrible, right? Um, and uh, and given the fact that the mobile version is really well designed, it's kind of become the default experience for PUBG maybe, I don't know. But <clears throat> again, I would use caution, I think I've said this before, that you know PUBG's success in the West could be kind of a false indicator for other big core brands like Call of Duty, for instance. <laughs> But maybe I'm missing something here on the consumer level as to why this is so popular. But um, it'd be interesting to know, like, what you think and why, you know, why it's done so well in the West. I mean, any ideas, Joe or Adam? Yeah, I can't speak to the gameplay. I don't know if Adam, you have any thoughts on that, but um, I do have some thoughts in terms of. You know, I, I think this outcome was pretty inevitable when Fortnite continues to be banned in China, which is the best country for revenue for high Twitch mobile games. And as, as Eric mentioned, you know, we aren't tracking uh, Google. So, and, and just so people just don't get carried away here with respect to PUBG, let's try to take more of an apples to apples comparison. So again, you know, Fortnite is not in China. This is a huge hit for Epic, but one that may ultimately get resolved. Secondly, the claim in terms of highest grossing is based on um, publicly available market research data estimates. And as Eric mentioned, App Annie and Central Tower are not tracking Google Play um, revenue. So, um, so the revenue and downloads being shown by those services uh, on the Google Play side is, is basically zero. And that's, that's not the case. So, 
So the better way to think about this is, you know, if we just look at the Western revenue and just do a straight up comparison of Western territories just on iOS of Fortnite versus PUBG, um, for Fortnite, using Central Tower data, just looking at a handful of Western countries, let's say U.S., Great Britain, Canada, Australia, Germany, France, and Italy, Central Tower is showing about $53 million in net revenue for those countries. Um, for Fortnite, and then for PUBG, on the other hand, is showing only $22 million in net revenue. Um, but when I add in Google Play, it then becomes $61 million. So again, this isn't an apples-to-apples apples comparison. And depending on China, Fortnite could very conceivably take the lead again. And so just remember, this: the, the title of this article should really have been PUBG officially becomes the world's most popular and highest grossing mobile game based on publicly available data, not including, <laughs> 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 you know, uh, not, not including China. So, uh, That's a, that is a, absolutely a terrible headline right there. Dude. <laughs> anyway, Adam. Yeah. Um, Let's dive in a little bit more deeply into the, the, the game then, um, because I, I do see there's three surprising elements here. Um, PUBG Mobile being a success globally, I think Eric talked a little bit about that, um, especially being like a virtual joystick game. I definitely wouldn't have expected this. Um, surprising thing to me, of course, is the economy has absolutely nothing pay to win within it. Um, they're mainly driven through battle passes, loot boxes, uh, of course, cosmetics being the core, but also things like events um, and it's actually resulting in as i said roughly about a dollar 25 rpi which generally is low when you start thinking about many of the top grossing games especially things like in the ccrpg space uh, but considering it's cosmetics only this is actually quite good um, and i think this has a lot to do with just the the number the actual quantity of skins and cosmetic items that you have to collect within this game all being very very high quality um, all being themed and all cycling through seasons. Um, they've done probably one of the best in-class implementations about how to uh, make a cosmetics-only economy work. And of course, this is done by Tencent, who's, who's uh, done this time and time again um, in years past. Um, so I think it's surprising to me that it is, has nothing to win with, win with it, but they've, if you're ever working on cosmetic-only economies, this is one of the best ones. Um, and as Eric also mentioned, this game is actually far better than the PC game it was actually ported from. Um, myself, as a PUBG player on PC, Bluehole has been incredibly slow to launch new content, keep up with cosmetics, build out a competitive framework, and actually fix the bugs with the game. The game is still incredibly clunky. Um, PUBG Mobile, on the other hand, has actually been keeping up with their community and delivering high-quality content continually, especially in the form of cosmetics, which actually feel rewarding, um, giving a lot of different avenues for players to be uh, earning rewards. Um, PUBG Mobile is actually one of the few games that actually continually launch battle passes. Um, most games that I've seen analyzing battle passes will have breaks in between them just because it takes quite a bit of content to maintain them. PUBG Mobile and uh, Epic Fortnite are two of the few games that actually managed to do this um, and launch a large amount of value within those battle passes. And I think that does have a lot to do with how things are growing. Um, also PUBG Mobile, as I talked about before, has a ton of different modes and engagement. And I think this has a lot to do with their, uh, the strength of their retention um, that they have, even if you start getting bored with the Battle Royale style game, you can go play DayZ zombie modes in the game uh, to keep you playing. Um, this is this all in comparison to Bluehole on PC, which still has crappy lock, locked loot box systems, really, really slow reward pacing, and overall very clunky controls, especially when you compare it to something like Apex on PC. On PC. Um, so yeah, PUBG Mobile actually seems to be pulling in some of the PC players, funny enough, is that players are actually setting up on their PCs to run PUBG Mobile because they can actually take advantage of the, say, much better control scheme. Um, and it turns out to be a much more rewarding game for players. But all this points to me, uh, all this points for me is that uh, when the hell is the PC console version of PUBG actually going to be free to play? Because it, it's it's been too long. It's been almost two years or over two years since Bluehole launched it. You have games like Apex and Fortnite eating up their audience, and they still haven't done it. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons why is that Bluehole just fundamentally isn't set up to do proper live ops. Like we're talking... 
um, a lot about struggling uh, respawn when it comes to Apex, but Blue Holes is struggling significantly more in terms of trying to keep up with their live ops and content releases within that game. And I think uh, this PUBG Mobile, surprisingly, also just points to me that there's a big gap for a free-to-play shooter on PC console that appeals to this pace. Uh, but the challenge is not just creating it, it's actually keeping up with the live ops and content requirements for it. And I think only Epic has managed to do this on PC console. So, so is PUBG Mobile built by Bluehole, or is it built by another team? It's built by a completely different team. Oh, okay. Well, that makes. <laughs> no, I did not know that. That makes sense. <laughs> um, okay, got it. That's yeah, partially why. All right. Well, I think that's it. And guys, we 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 made it. Uh, Eric's, Eric was hungover. I had two hours of sleep, but we actually got through this. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit sa saucy. <laughs> yeah. I really came out, yeah. really out of that apple rant. <laughs> no whiskey. Yeah. All right. Uh, with that, I think that's it. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you.